The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. All right, go ahead and take your Bibles and open them with me the gospel according to Mark. We're going to begin in a moment in Mark chapter 2, continuing to examine Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. So Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22 is hopefully where we're going to get in a moment when we get over the uh, technical difficulties part of this. If we don't get over it, did you bring your Bible? We're good then. We'll make it. Either way. Looks like we're up and running. All righty. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse uh, 18. If I said that correctly a while ago, let's just reread that text. And the disciples of John and the Pharisees used to fast. uh, And the disciples of John and the Pharisees used to fast. And they came and say unto him, Why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast? But thy disciples, that's Jesus' disciples, fast not. And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bridegroom or the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have a bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and shall they fast in those days. And no man who soweth a piece of new cloth and an old garment, else a new piece, I'm in verse 21, that is filled, taketh away from the old, and is rent, and is made worse. And no man putteth wine into old bottles, else the new wine doth burst the bottles, and the wine is spilled, and the bottles be marred, but new wine must be put into new bottles. Of course, we have some parallel passages. I won't throw that up right quick for you, but nonetheless, you can find those in Mark chapter 9. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17, as well as Luke chapter 5, uh, beginning in about verse 30 through 36. So that's your two contexts. You may have written those down from a week or so ago. We were talking last week in the cheat sheets up behind me. What two forms of fasting do we find biblically? And I mean, it has to be Bible-centered. What two forms of fasting did we find or discover biblically? It's really easy. I called it, I referenced it as the commanded fast on the one hand and the committed fast on the other. Now, does anyone remember what, uh, when we're concerning the commanded fast, quote-unquote, that's my words, but do you remember when that fast was commanded? What, what time of year was it? What event was taking place? That was the Day of Atonement. And of course, we have reference for that. Much of that is found in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 16, as well as in Leviticus chapter 23. And in those contexts, they are told specifically that they are to, uh, basically to, what was the word? I just lost it. Maybe you can find it. Afflict, that's my word, I lost that, to afflict themselves. So they were supposed to be afflicting themselves during that time. Now, when it came to afflicting themselves, this is kind of a review from last week, what things were included in that? Do you remember? Fasting and prayer is one, probably the main focus of that, but what else? Coming down to afflicting the body in some senses. There were some specifics we discovered from Scripture, and that had to do with not wearing shoes, It had to do with not taking advantage of the marriage bed. You know what I mean by that? It had to do with several things that were involved in that, but that was for the main purpose, it seems at least, so that they could take that time and to focus. And so when we talk about the Day of Atonement, we're talking about that day, that one time of the year that came up 
when they were basically rehearsing or celebrating the Day of Atonement, that is a time when the priests would go in. There were many things that went on, but the priests would go in and make sacrifice for the people. And so what the people were told to do basically was keep space from that, stay home, and participate in these fasts. And so we had that instance. We had a number of instances other than that uh, that were not commanded, however, that they often participated in. And several of those we went through, hopefully I've got the slide that will come up for it in a moment. Biblical examples of that was a time when Moses fasted. We got a reference for that in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 28. We got times when David fasted. There were several of those, but 2 Samuel chapter 6, 12, 16 to 23 is one of those. We've got times, for example, when Elijah fasted. Of course, we have the record of that, 1 Kings 19 and verse 8. We have Esther fasting, Esther chapter 4 and verse 16. Nehemiah fasting, Nehemiah 1 and verse 4. Uh, Daniel fasted on a couple of different occasions, the main one being Daniel chapter 10, verses 1 or 2 through 3. And then, of course, we had the early church fasting, and we'll talk more about that in a bit. But these were not the commanded fast. That commanded fast was just specifically set aside for that day of atonement. But committed fast had to do with what terms? I use two terms for that, so it's, it's my words, not, not yours or, or biblically, but it had to do with two things, mainly the fact that they were able or committed or fast, could commit themselves to fasting because of the liberty of it. They had the liberty to go ahead and fast. And of course, we had all those examples just then that brought up instances where various or different Bible characters did that. But how do we answer someone who says, well, you know, that's the Old Testament. You know, we look at that, we find all those biblical examples, and each one of them, all those characters listed, Moses, whether it be Moses, Daniel, Elijah, the children of Israel, whoever, that's just the Old Testament. How do we answer that argument? They did the New Testament as well. And there were many Bible characters that were involved in that. The main one that comes to mind immediately because of our context, we studied just about, I don't know, 25 weeks ago, <laughs> in chapter 1, but the main one comes down to Jesus. Mark has the account of that. Of course, Matthew's the account I choose to reference here on the screen, but it tells us specifically that Jesus fasted for a 40-day period. Other Bible characters are included in that. We find Anna fasting, Luke chapter 2 and verse 27. I go through this quickly because this was last week anyway. We find Saul fasting, Acts chapter 9 and verse 9. Of course, it tells us there that he had not ate nor drank for a three-day period. We find the, uh, the Cornelius fasting, Acts chapter 10, uh, 31, or 30 and 31. And then we find also the early church doing that for different and various reasons. So there were a number of fasts that were committed under the New Testament law or during the period of that time. But we have to be clear about this, and it's something I've had to reel back through my mind all day long, really. Anyone who fasted during that period of time, whether it be Paul, whether it be Jesus, whether it be Paul, whether it be Anna, whether it be the early church, whether it be Cornelius, whoever, under which law did they live? They lived under the old law anyway. And so they would have had presently in their lives still at that time, that moment, still that one commanded fast, the Day of Atonement. And were taking advantage through liberty of committed fast that they were taking part in. That was in the old law as well. Now, our question then arises, when Jesus died on the cross, did that end any liberty or ability or, if you will, authority for fasting? This is open discussion right here. 
Just thinking it through. They did. And go ahead. It did not end it. And some of those references that I kind of passed through really quickly right there, the elders being appointed, Barnabas and Paul fasting over the decision to appoint those elders, that happened under which law? Law of the New, the New, New Testament law. And so the, the idea of fasting, albeit only one time specifically commanded around one event of the Old Testament, doesn't do anything to debunk the argument that someone might choose the day to fast. Now, I want to ask you this because I, I wouldn't want anybody to answer out loud, but in your minds, have you ever fasted in your life? I fasted a couple of times, but it was by force in a hospital situation or something. You ever heard the term, uh, the letters come together too tightly, NPO? You know what that means? It's some kind of Latin term, but it basically means you fix and starve. That's what that means. Uh, but other times in our lives, we may fast just because we, you know, we've suffered a, an illness or a death or something like that in our family. Or we've had a, a huge event happen that's just kind of disturbed us or rocked our worlds. And then we pause and we fast because we don't feel up to it and such. There are oftentimes times or periods in which we could fast. But the question arises for us specifically, and it's because of our context and another couple that we'll look at tonight... What were Jesus' instructions concerning fasting? Who knows before we read any of it? Who has any idea what Jesus said concerning fasting? Okay, so that's one of the references we'll go to. Jesus instructing them that it's something that's to be done in secret or it's something that's not to be done to flaunt itself. What else? Our main context, as a matter of fact, uh, not only Jesus talking about the kind of the, the way that it's to be done, but also the reason why it would be done. And of course, we'll gather some information biblically from that. But go with me in your Bibles back. Uh, these references, I should have done this differently, but go back with me to the book of Matthew for just a moment. Matthew chapter 6. This is one of the instances that is recorded where Jesus brings up, or it's at least brought up for him to answer, uh, the topic or the idea of fasting. So Matthew chapter 6 Beginning in verse 16. I've kind of got it on the screen, but I, I hope that you'll look in your Bible for it as well. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. Jesus makes this statement. Moreover, when ye fast. Now, what do we often do with that phrase right there? What's done with that? When ye fast. You know, we, we, we're sticklers for Bible things and Bible ways, spoken in Bible ways, whatever. What is the implication in just that phrase if that's all you read? The fasting would be a necessary part of life. Now, what you have to do with that, and we'll mention this a little bit later as well, is you have to put that again in the context of time and understand it when Jesus is addressing this during his Sermon on the Mount, here in Matthew 6 is just one of the records of that, that he's discussing that, speaking of a time when they were still required of God to fast, commanded to fast in the Day of Atonement, and also a time, as our context tells us in Matthew, Mark chapter 4, no, Mark chapter 2, in which there was a ton of traditional fasting that went on. Some of those things for good reason, no doubt, but there were fasts, and that's with a long S on the end of it. There were many fasts, that were being participated in. 
So Jesus speaks to a group of people who he knows the large majority of them and all of them that were Jews at that time at least participated in one fast a year if for no other reason than the Day of Atonement. And that was to live according to the old law. So he makes that statement, when you fast, that really doesn't have a, a, a bearing on us as much other than the liberty side of it. He said, moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites are of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Now what we learn from this text, as well as kind of some historical background in this, we know that oftentimes the hypocrites, which the hypocrites were, basically that word means two-faced, okay? They've got one life they live on Monday, I would say on Monday, and another life they live on their Sabbath, Saturday, our Sunday. And so they've got a way of living their lives to present themselves to men to be one way or the other. Now in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, particularly in chapter 6, we actually learn in chapter 6 quite a bit about the way these men presented themselves in that day. For example, go back into verse 1 of this same chapter, Matthew chapter 6 if you're there. He said, take heed, do not, uh, take heed that you do not your alms, monies, or funds before men to be seen of them. Otherwise you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. So what's their problem right then? Verse 2 tells us, Therefore when thou doest thine alms, or thou contribution your giving, do not sound the trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. He goes on in verse 3, But when thou doest thine alms, do not let thy, let thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. You drop down in verse 5, And when thou prayest thou, I'm still in Matthew 6, When thou prayest thou, be not as the hypocrites are, for they pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they had their reward. So these instances, the giving of alms, contribution, the prayers that are offered beginning there in verse 5, as well as what we have here in the more immediate context concerning fasting, the issue that is arising is these men are doing this to be seen of who? Men rather than of God. So that's the issue that Jesus is addressing there. And that's one of the things we have to always consider as we're looking at anything biblically is to kind of back up, pull away, and not try to answer every question in the world except the one that Jesus is dealing with and actually answering. Now, did they have a problem with their giving of alms? Yes. Uh, did they have the ability and liberty to give alms in certain instances? Yes. Did they have the ability to pray in the streets if they chose to? Yes. Could they fast publicly if they were? Yes, if their attitude was right about it. If they were doing it for all the right reasons. Yes, Mike. Uh, Luke chapter 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember, the Pharisee had that very attitude. <coughs> when he, he prayed thus of himself, he said, Lord, uh, uh, I fast twice a week. Uh, so, you know, my question to you was, did the Jews consider uh, in their traditions, did they consider fast, those fasts as commanded? Did they consider them to be commanded? Because, by the way, I think 
think that has a bearing on what you're talking about here. He's, he's rather proud of the fact that he's fast. Yes, pride involved in it. And as far as if, if you didn't hear Mike, his question to, to us to consider is, those fasts that the uh, Pharisee and the publican, that the Pharisee said he did twice a week, would he consider, that's the key word, that to be commanded? I'll probably do this. Commanded of who? Of man. But for them and for their traditions, and you might as well say it, for what many of them had obviously been taught since their very beginning, since their existence on earth as, as babes, what do they know to do? You fast. And, and most likely, and there's no way to absolutely prove this from Scripture, but that's one example of it. Most likely that fast, or those fasts that they were participating in, obviously that's not specifically the fast, the Day of Atonement, as Paul would recognize it, but that is typically the fast that they often committed, and, and many Jews still do, committed to doing two days a week, primarily on Monday and on Thursday. Now they got a few reasons we'll get to a little bit later why they choose those days and why they connect those dots and such as that. But it was very common, at least, for men to fast at least those two days a week. And they generally did that from sunup to sundown. Uh, they, they watched their clock a little differently than us, but they would put that at six to six. So that's the way they would commit to doing that. And so, yes, it is the idea that they believe those to be commanded. But oftentimes when Jesus has to address individuals over whatever their issues are, what does he have to be clear about? That there's a difference between the doctrines of men and the teachings of God. There's a difference that arises there. Now, liberty, yes, they had, but as far as their attitude, some issues there. Now, notice in our context that we're looking at specifically now in Matthew's account as we read across it, he says that they would disfigure themselves. They would appear to be fasting so they may be seen of men. He said in the last phrase of verse 16, they have their reward. What kind of reward can you receive for trying to do something for men and men only and not God? Praise from them. That is your reward. And the flip side of that comes up in the next couple of verses where he says, however, if you do this in secret and your heavenly father is the one that knows it, then he in turn has the ability to reward for that. So their reward, if you will, what they gain out of that, if anything, you can either gain the favor of men or you can gain the favor of God. And in so many instances in life, that definitely has an application as well. But that's one of those parallel accounts. And in this account, the condemnation that comes down the pipeline from God or from Jesus, I should say, unto them is basically make sure that when you do this, you're sincere about it. Make sure that when you do this, that you do it in the proper way and in the proper manner. Now, back over in our context here in just a moment, I brought a few things up here on the screen that the Pharisees were oftentimes guilty of doing. Number one, it's emphasized in that context we just read, they oftentimes did it just strictly for show. You know, just to be seen. The giving of their alms that we referenced back up in the beginning part of chapter 6 I don't know exactly how that panned out, but many have tried to relay that through you know, commentaries and, and historical stuff to talk about them literally coming in and making sure as they cast their, their alms, they cast their coins into the uh, phylacteries or whatever that held those that they like to just kind of give it a good chunk in there. Have you ever dropped something in the bottom of like an old tin bucket, like a, a, milk, a milk bucket or something like that? It makes 
quite a bit of noise in that. You drop something on a hard surface, you might hear it. You drop something with intention, and it can make even more noise. The trumpet idea, them standing on the sides of the streets, making sure that everybody hears them pray. Now, is it wrong to pray in public? That's kind of a side note. No, it's not. Matter of fact, I'll tell you a little bit of a story that really impressed me a number of years ago. Um, I was down in Valdosta, Georgia, preaching a meeting. Went out to eat with a couple of... Uh, brothers of mine there late at night, so you know where we were, we're at Huddle House. And we walked in with, this, with these two guys, or I was with two guys. One of the guys came sat down. Of course, I sat down. They brought our food out, and as soon as they did, the man that was with us, I didn't know this guy, he stood up right in the middle of Huddle House and said, if you would, bow with me. And he started praying. And I mean, shocked me. I mean, I, I kind of stepped back. But at the end of that, not that I was thinking you ought to be seen a men for that, but in that I was somewhat impressed. Because what's the normal thing to do in a restaurant? And by normal, I mean average. You kind of be soft about it, and you know, what do you do? You stand there and you kind of look around, make sure the waitress is not coming by, and you, you look. Not to be seen a men, but for the idea of not having shame either. So these men that are here on these street sides, they're doing it for show. Oftentimes the Pharisees made these fasts and other things that they participated in a legal requirement. You know, whether or not those things, whether it was related, if it was related to the Day of Atonement, obviously they could, but these other fasts they participated in were not such. And they used it oftentimes as a way to judge. How do we know that? From our context here. Jim. Because, yes, sir. I used to work for a group of, uh, they considered themselves quite... Uh, Orthodox Jews, I guess you could say. I mean, they they uh, observed the holidays. They closed down on, you know, one day or two days a year or something, you know. But and they would fast occasionally. They fasted on the Day of Atonement, and then they fasted on other days too. But when they fasted, they fasted from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. You know. I, because we went out to eat one night, and I was like, I thought you were fasting. They said, well, that ended at 6 p.m. <laughs> it just goes from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Is that, you know, something like these folks might have done? I think very much like what they would have done. Again, so, so much of it in, well, yeah, I mean, in that, in what you just illustrated, you know, if y'all got to supper at 6.15, how convenient. Yeah. But, you know, uh, but I'm not taking away from their dedication or anyone else's to say that, but the idea that they just, so much of what was done in that day was done based on what was tradition, what was learned, what was acceptable, what was, you know, what was to be seen to men, whatever. So much of that was involved in such. And so, yes, I think very much related to it, obviously. Now, to continue that, and this is where you go back over to our context, Mark chapter 2, We've got on the one hand Matthew's account where Jesus is addressing their attitude toward fasting. And that is, why are you doing this? You're doing it to be seen a man or, or for real reason behind it. And then in our context, we've read a couple different times here from Mark chapter 2 and verse 18. A, a few more things come up. One, we have what I'm calling the concern. When these men come, and by the way, it's a little bit confusing to me. And I'm, I'm saying right here, you know, both hands up admitting it. I'm not sure... Who's doing the speaking here if it happens to be one of the Pharisees? 
I would suggest maybe that's right. Or it could be one of the disciples of John, and depending on what account you look at, whether you're looking at Luke's account, Luke chapter 5, or where you're looking at Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 9, it tends to read a little bit differently. Uh, we're looking at the King James Version on the screen. I think the New King James sounds a little bit different. The old ASV sounded a little bit different in that, seeming to indicate that somebody steps forward, not knowing who, but someone steps forward as pretty much a representative of both. Now that seems confusing. At least it had to me. Because the disciples of John, how would we think of them in comparison to the disciples of Jesus? Shouldn't they be on the same page? Kind of related to the same things? Kind of you know, practicing the same fast if there were fast? Kind of going in the same patterns? I would assume so because of what John's work had been back over from chapter 1 and that he came to prepare the way for the Lord. He came to establish those things. John's teaching, for example, was very much similar to what Jesus said. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the main message of John's teaching as well as Jesus at that point. So you would assume they'd be very much related. So why would John's disciples ever be put in the same sentence, maybe even in the same group to ask such questions as, you know, why do we fast? Why do the Pharisees fast and your disciples don't? I don't know if this is the best way to answer it, but I think it's just basically because of the fasts with, a, with the S, that long S on it, that they were participating in were not necessarily sinful. They were done out of liberty, not law. Could have been done by the wrong attitude, certainly, from the previous context, but done out of liberty, not law. And what the disciples of John had been exposed to all of these years coming up as they transitioned out of the Old Testament and over into the New Testament, was much of which was influenced by the Pharisees, much of which was seated in nothing more than tradition. So the question is asked then, why did the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but why don't your disciples fast? Why are you not fasting? Now, Jesus' answers answers, and I said that plurally in this, are, as you always know, His are. They're very clear and concise, but in some senses they're concealed. You know, I have to use my words. They're clear and concise, but they're also concealed. The reason I say that is because if you read through, and we already have once or twice, if you read through this, after that question arises there in verse um, 18 of our context, 18-19, if you read on through that, Jesus comes back with three different arguments He presents. And I named them out like this. There's a wedding involved, there's a wardrobe, wardrobe and a wine. That's His examples. Again, that's not a Chronicles of Nardia book or anything like that, but that's the three things that are named out there. The wedding's involved, that's one example, the wardrobes and the wine. That's the way Jesus answers that. And he's very clear and concise, but also concealed. And I say that because, let's go over the context really quick. Go to uh, Luke chapter 5. I keep mentioning these parallel accounts. And I appreciate Mike doing his parallel accounts with us for our invitation a moment ago. Go to Luke chapter 5. Um, when you get there, look down to verse 36. Oh, hold on. No, that's not what I want. I don't want that. I don't want that yet. 
yeah, it starts back up from there, but that's not what I'm looking for. Um, maybe it's Matthew's account. Go back to Matthew's account. Maybe, maybe I'll be correct if I get over there. Matthew chapter 9. His specific account seen in verses 14 through 17. Well, the similar thing being discovered here, verse 14 beginning, Matthew 9, verse 14, and it came to him and the disciples of John. So here it tells us John's disciples are, are doing the asking here. Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but off thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said to them, Can the children of a bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But then days will come in which the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and they shall not fast. And no man putteth a new cloth in an old garment, verse 16, nor put it in, and it will fill or take up the garment, and rent was made worse. Neither do men runneth out of bottles, and perisheth the new wine into new bottles, for they are both preserved. And he spake these things, look in verse 18. Unto them, behold, there was... Uh, I'm sorry, that's not it. All right. I'll admit I'm hot and sweaty and I've lost my mind. Somewhere in one of these accounts it says it's a parable. Somebody find it. You can teach as much as I can. Especially when I'm lost. It had to have been Luke. Yeah, it was Luke. It was in verse 36. I looked at verse 39 because I've got that bracketed down here for some other reason. Verse 36, Luke 5. And he spake also to them a parable. No man put a piece of old cloth in a new garment. So we have a parable here. So he's concealing a few things that he's saying here. But what are his basic arguments? When he makes the statement in the beginning of this, I'm back over in Mark's account of this. When he makes that statement to them that... Uh, Verse 19, And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? What are some of the common reasons? We won't pull the chart back up. But what are some of the common reasons why people fasted? Those Old Testament examples as well as new. Mourning and time of sadness is one of the major ones. Times of decision were a part of that. Times of desolation were a part of that. Times of destruction were a part of that. Other, other terms come up, but oftentimes times of mourning. Now, if you think about what John's disciples were in the midst of doing, as well as the Pharisees, in that they are not yet understanding who Jesus is, what are they mourning? What could they be mourning? The, the promised Messiah that they have not yet uh, at least appreciated, I think it's the only word I can come up with, but have appreciated that He's present with them. You know, many of the Pharisees by this point, and many of the Jews for that matter as well, when they looked at Jesus, even though He claimed to be the Son of God, even though He had chapter 1, verse 1 to 45, as well as into chapter 2, had performed many great miracles or wonders, spoke with them many wonderful words as well, they were not appreciating who Jesus was yet. Jesus' disciples, however, I'm not saying they were ever perfect at it because we've got evidence that they weren't, but Jesus' disciples had what? They had some experience. They had some insight. Those that were closest to Him had that relationship. 
And so Jesus' presentation to them, or his argument there, his comeback, if you will, is that, look, why would my disciples fast? Why would they be mourning, major reason for fasting, when I'm right here with them? But what ultimately happens to Jesus as far as his physical presence? Ultimately, he is killed. Ultimately, he does die. Ultimately, he is resurrected, however, but he also ascends. Remember what uh, Jesus was telling his disciples? The record is in John's account. There are others, but John's account is the one that's so common. But chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, what did he say? What's that first phrase? Let not your heart be troubled. What's their issue? Some of their issue, not all of their issue, but some of the issue of those disciples, apostles from him is, Lord, you're going away. What are we going to do? How are we going to live without you here in our presence? But there's not actually an example of where they actually did that. Though. No. Whatever the warning was placed before them, but there's not an example that they did that. Maybe these are words, well, I can know this, I can assume this. Jesus spake nothing that was of no use. So it was appropriate that it be said, it was needful that it be said, but those disciples were not yet, and neither are these here, are they necessarily mourning a loss? Are they mourning the fact that they've not yet known the Messiah? So that first example there concerning the bridegroom and the picture that it was, a bridegroom and or the bride, of course, a part of a wedding party. What oftentimes happens at a wedding party? There's some celebration. You know, if you go to someone's wedding, and I'm not saying this has never happened, I'm sure it has, but if you go to someone's wedding, say you're invited, and now it's they, today, nowadays it's very exclusive to get an invitation, but say you're invited and you arrive, and the first thing you do is you go and sit over in the corner and kind of keep your head down and never look up. And when they get done with the wedding and the reception opens up and they say, okay, here's the snacks and all the food we provided and everything, come get you some punch. You don't move that direction. You're not in the group that comes up and you know, slaps the man on the back and tells him congratulations or hugs the bride. You just, the whole time, you're way over here. Does that make you different? Generally, you would be. You'd be separated from the group. It's traditional, at least, that while the bridegroom, the bride, are present, that there would be celebration and not mourning. Not topside or bottom where I need to get. We're going we're gonna to move on. We're going to move on. Look into the wineskins as well as the wardrobe yourself. The, the, both the illustrations are the same, however, in that if you take, and what they're talking about here is you take a piece, a piece of what we would call pre-shrunk, already used cloth, you put a brand new piece of cloth in it, the, when you go to wash that, there's going to be some shrinkage, some separation. The wineskins as well. Something was interesting to me, however, a lot of the wineskins, I don't know what you pictured in the past, but I've come to learn that many of those wineskins would hold up to 600 gallons. The reference here could be about the things they put across a camel's back. You know, I kind of picture a guy with a, a canteen on his side, you know, made of leather. But those things would burst. That'd be a big issue. You lose 600 gallons of, of juice and something like that. But here's the thing. Fasting... This is my statement, you know, so take it for what it is. But fasting should not be a result 
or should be, I should say, a result of reason, but not ritual. When it comes to the Pharisees, when it comes to the disciples of John, when it comes to anyone in that matter, they oftentimes fasted for various reasons that were aside of the Day of Atonement. These are some that are listed here. Um, by the way, that, that word, Beth Mumford, boy, can say that, the fast of Gedaliah. And I looked that up, and it sounded like you get a lion, I'll get a pole, so get a liar. That's the only way I know that. Uh, but the fast of get alive was, for example, observed to commemorate the Babylonian exiles. Does that sound like a time to celebrate? Not in that case, probably. The second one down there, the fast of Esther, I can say that, was to commemorate uh, the Jews' deliverance from Haman. Of course, that would have been a celebratory type of fast. The fast of the firstborn, of course, that comes back to the Passover and that sort of thing. Then the fast of Tammuz, which has to do with the month, the day of the year and the month. Uh, about the walls of Jerusalem, uh, the breaching of the walls of Jerusalem by the Babylonians as well. So there were times when they fasted. And these ritualistic fastings, fastings, as David pointed out some of these earlier, oftentimes had to do with either deliverance, decision, death, or disaster. And of course these are the coinciding names that go along with that but whether or not a fast is that which is committed because of ritual or for reason that's the divide that jesus is making here in our context now just these last couple of, of, of illustrations fasting is oftentimes coupled beside what prayer okay but the fast itself or for that matter the prayer itself although it is a petition to God, us fasting or not, or the length of our prayers will be another way of illustrating on the prayer side, or the etiquacy of our prayers, is that the right eloquency of our prayers, does that influence God's choices or decisions in how He answers? No. But the focus we put into prayer or if the discussion we're fasting as well, it does have to do with our preparation. Not the petition that is asked, but the preparation that is giving. So this is my only conclusion. This is all it is, my conclusion. Fasting may not change God's will, but it might change your heart. Prayer is the same. God's will is affected by His will. His decisions are based upon His own. But our willingness to participate in that is not only in one sense given to us as liberty and not law, but given to us as opportunity to come before Him. Any questions or comments? All right, that feels like a complete flop and a failure, but the good news is for me, Verse 23 is next. And that's something that's even more strange. Believe it or not, read up on that. Beginning in verse 23 and then we'll get to chapter 3 one day and things will get a little easier. Thank you.